Tis the season for some cursing. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox. We are the number one Jewish podcast that you're listening to right now. And I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Merry Christmas! Ho, ho, ho! And this week, sitting in the Leibovitz Memorial Chair, producer Joshua Cross. How are you, Josh? Ho, ho, ho. Ah, there, there we go. Ho, ho, ho. Liel is in the Holy Land where he is doing a meetup. Um, there's still time to get in on that meetup, right? Uh, I don't think the meetup has happened yet. The Tel Aviv meetup? I do not think so. I do not think so. So if people, we have like 30 people of RSVP over. All of Tel Aviv wants to see Liel. If you want to see Liel uh, in Tel Aviv, uh, he's going to have a bar night out. Location to be disclosed to you when you write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and just put hanging with Liel in the subject line and then you will hang with Liel. I am... Really, have you guys been checking the mailbox about how many people want to hang with Liel? No, I've been seeing on Facebook, and everyone's like, "You're amazing! I can't wait to hang out." And I was like, "Wow, yeah, coming out of the woodwork for Liel over here." Yeah, I mean, I had a great hang when I was there two marches ago. But I this this hang, first of all, we have a lot more listeners now than then, and also it's like it's Liel. I think people want to do they want to do Eretz Yisrael, yeah, with the way it was the way God intended. <laughs> with Liel, fa la 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 la. In honor of Jews' favorite holiday, Christmas, our guests this week are Christmas themed though they're Jews. Uh, Bill Adler, the Jewish hip-hop executive whose annual Christmas playlists have developed a cult following, is going to be here to talk to us about how to do a Christmas playlist right, because uh, he's been doing it right for how many years? When did he? 32, 33, I think. Yeah, he, he's terrific. And then Stephen D'Souza, who wrote the screenplay for the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard, is going to be here to talk to us about uh, Christmas movies, in particular his own. Uh, but before we get to them, uh, Stephanie Budnick, in this Christmas season, uh, what, what, what's up? I love Christmas. Um, I think I have a very positive relationship with Christmas because I grew up in a, like a pretty Jewish area. So I didn't really see much Christmas until I went to college. And I was like, what is this thing? I love it. Um, so it's not like I was the only Jewish kid in a town filled with Christmas trees, which I understand why people have like a more complicated relationship. I'm very pro-Christmas and I'm like, I'm a real fan. I don't have Christmas envy. I just have Christmas like curiosity. You have no Christmas envy, no Christmas guilt, no Christmas angst. You're just... I'm so excited to be in New York. Usually I'm away this week. Um, Tablet's offices are closed for the Christmas week typically. So we, you know, we work remotely. And so Ben has been covering college football bowl game. So usually I'll go with him for New Year's and we'll, we'll sort of make a trip out of it. But I'm going to be here in New York all week. And I just want to like have a very Jewish Christmas, like Chinese food every day, movies every night. Window displays the whole week. during yeah, the day. Yeah, I want to yeah. just, I just want to, I want to love it. That sounds amazing. Growing up in Great Neck though, were there like the Jews who did, were there Christmas trees? And it was like, will those Jews do Christmas? I think if you were, had a one Christian parent, you probably did. I, I yes, like I saw Christmas trees. It just it was never like all my friends had Christmas trees and I didn't, and I felt left out. It was there was none of that. It was more like a curiosity from afar. Josh, was there? What was the Christmas? What was Christmas uh, in New Jersey for you? Well, my mom grew up elsewhere on Long Island in Merrick, and there were what enough up? Christians there that she sort of could tell stories about doing the caroling thing. And it was always a thing that other people were doing. It was fun to do. I didn't realize do. caroling was real. I just thought it was in movies. Oh, it totally is. I've got stories. They just come to your house it's and sing? It's creepy as hell. I've been meaning to tell that story as well. So yes, it's not a story. It's just we had car we used to have carols come by and it was wonderful. There'd be like eight or 10 of them. You'd open the door and there'd be like beautiful Christians holding candles 
and they'd sing like God rest you, Mary to gentlemen me, that's, to you. That creeps me out a little. Oh, really? That's like overt religion, <laughs> like a Christmas tree. I'm like, whatever. Oh no, I wish God would somebody send carolers again. I thought it was, I, did uh, you like? I, I don't know. It, it's kind of creepy. Oh, I loved it. I don't like people showing up anywhere <laughs> in my house. Yeah. You don't like people knocking on your door. No. You're like Sid. Because, yeah. you know, if you grew up in an apartment building in New York, nobody knocks on yeah. your door. Where's There's that? a problem. There's no Halloween. People knock no on Jehovah's doors Witnesses. in Springfield, no, 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 Massachusetts. We do Halloween. Yeah. Uh, our building. Yeah. The, well, the floors get decked out. Oh, yeah. But Christmas, not so much. So what's up with you at uh, in, uh, up in Harlem, Josh? Well, um, you know, getting ready for today, I do my normal um, Tuesday morning tradition, which is I am fortunate enough that we record on the day that new episodes of Savage Lovecast drop. So ah. I was listening on my way here to Dan Savage, who's going to be with us in Seattle. And yep. I am super excited. I've been reading and listening to him for forever. You um, learned how to make love from Dan Savage, basically. Savagely. Savagely. Don't tell my wife. Okay. <laughs> you hide the book under like under the mattress. <laughs> yes. Uh, a 50 something year old gay man taught me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, so. He, he was talking about the season and how there are different ways to celebrate. And I think it was interesting because it bounced off of something that's been going on in the Facebook group is there's a lot of people who are put off by copious Christianity and copious Christmas that they feel left out. And it's interesting because it's a different group of people that I think normally participate. So there is certainly a subset of our audience that is sort of taken aback by this Christmas pageant doesn't have a single song, whereas, you know, here I'm used to my kids' school having the Ladino Hanukkah song, the other Ocho Candelicas <laughs> and like 55 <laughs> other things and the Kwanzaa song and everything else. And so it's been interesting to see that perspective and sort of Dan made me think of it again this morning. Yeah. Well, there was the thing about the woman whose daughter got sent home or she wasn't allowed to wear Hanukkah socks. It was Christmas sock day. And there's like, and you that's realize what like, I'm missing by yeah, not being like a fit. that's really yeah. intense. There's a lot that happens in 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 places where majority of people are Christian, and it's like accepted that that's what you do. And so I do think that I'm like I'm glib about like I like Christmas because to me that just means like a Rockefeller Center tree that I'm never right. actually going to see, and like right. songs on the radio. But like if you live in a place where it's it can feel oppressive, I think, and, right. and, and you could feel in the minority. The flip side is, is the, the the largest drama we ever had at the Christmas concert at my kids' school on the Upper West Side is there was a evangelical transplant from Nebraska, and she was like, "What are all these non-Christian songs going on at the Christmas concert?" We were like, "You're in the wrong city." <laughs> right? You, you knew where you were. You moving. knew where you moved. So Rebecca actually had um, in social studies this week at her public school in uh, in New Haven. She had um, there was like World Religions Day, or it was Jewish Day. I think they'd been doing World Religions Week, and they had Jewish Day. And Rebecca, of course, is like you know her bat mitzvah is, in a, is soon. She's in like peak Jewish form, yeah. and I was like, Rebecca, this is this is going to be tough. Like, they're not going to get this right. She's like, I know, Dad. It's it's it's. I'll 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 survive this day. So at the end of the day, I said, What did what did they have in school? And she said, Well, uh, you know, there was there was some readings from our world uh, religions book that said that there's liberal Judaism, conservative Judaism, and Orthodox Judaism, and liberal and conservative Jews are the ones who don't follow dietary rules, and Orthodox do. Which of course is like wrong on That's the face of it. That's kind of an amazing and like blurring of also like. Reality. Yeah, it's like it, it's wrong. It's also like weirdly reductionist in the wrong way. And then she said at the end of the day, there was um, the, there was a quiz question, a multiple choice that was like, which of the four is not a branch of Judaism? Liberal, orthodox, conservative, conformist. <laughs> I, lo- I want to be a conformist. <laughs> By like, the way, actually, liberal Judaism, that's so, such a misnomer. 
And then because then it makes conservative Judaism like you would think different things right. of those words. Except in England, it, they do yeah. call reform. So it's it's they call it re- liberal Judaism. It was it was a, a hot, a hot mess. Um, have you been cooking with Jay Chef, Josh? I have. Um, you <laughs> know, speaking you, of hot messes, <laughs> but well, <laughs> tasty in, in hot fact, messes. It was a, a mess only because um, for people who don't know, I have three kids and um, Mark probably appreciates this. Do you ever make a meal that all of your kids eat? Uh, Sid knows how, uh, it, it definitely happens when Sid's cooking. It seldom happens when I'm cooking. It's always a challenge. I mean, in, in our house, we're cookers, so I don't necessarily need the meal plan stuff done for me, but I will say that we got this box and I was like, all right, kids, you're going to help me. And we sat down and did it. It was the same one Stephanie got, the salmon, maple, what was it? I forget again. It was, it was, a, it was a maple crusted, maple glazed salmon. Exactly. It was really good. No, it was really good. And what was amazing is like that was the one night that week that all three of my children ate without complaining because they are a pain in my ass every night unless I cook three things or tell them to be quiet. J Chef, it will shut up your kids. Yes, J- yes. That's that's their new slogan. So people should go to jchef.com and enter the, enter the code unorthodox30. Right, and, and they'll get thirty percent off their first 30% order. Thirty percent off, and the recipes that uh, Gabriel has put together, they seem to, you know, they unite they're families. Great. They, they unite my very obnoxious children, which is a mitzvah in and of itself. They bring shalom bite. They bring peace in the home. Um, they bring shalom bite. Ooh, we're just we're coming out, Gabriel. Listen, we have a couple slogans for you. <laughs> <laughs> we are here. We are writing your copy for you. Um, I do just want to say two more things about um, about what's going on at the Oppenheimer home front. The first is that Mondays are now Cheeto Monday because we had Cheetos a few weeks ago, and Rebecca really loves Cheetos. She's like, Dad, why don't we have Cheetos more often? And the reason is, the reason is, of course, because we are, you know culturally snooty northeasterners you feel like well you can't feed your kids orange food right but then i was like why not we have ice cream every night right like they watch a ton of tv why not cheetos so we've instituted cheeto monday and um that involves a baggie of cheetos in her lunch and then when she comes home her after school snack is cheetos i'm just putting that out there because i want people to know what's going on in the oppenheimer household the other thing is that um i don't know if i've told the the j crew that i'm doing this book about pittsburgh i don't know that i've mentioned that i've been flying to pittsburgh every week to do a book on the aftermath of the shootings at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And what I really hope to do is not write a book about the shootings, but about um, but about Squirrel Hill, about the community and how it thrives and survives in the aftermath of tragedy. So that's been really, really meaningful. It has, however, turned me into a Steelers fan, which has put some some stress between me and Rebecca because she's in hardcore Patriots mode. Speaking of, of sports, sp- speaking of grown men with balls, uh, the um, Patriots star Julian Edelman, whose father, of course, is Jewish and has written a Jewish children's book for the uh, PJ Library or has had ghost written for him a Jewish children's book for PJ Library, <laughs> um, wore cleats that said Eitz Chaim, like Tree of Life, written in Hebrew. And he tweeted out the names of the 11 victims of the shooting. So so go him. They're great cleats. One of them says Eitz Chaim, uh, which means Tree of Life, which is the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And the other one has a big Jewish star on it and says hashtag stronger than hate. Some of you will remember the story where Bimbo Bakeries, which does mass amounts of baking for many different brands, was losing its blanket uh, kashrut certification. So the duosphere was very worried that a lot of brands, including Entenmann's and and um, Strowman's and Arnold's rye bread, Levy's rye bread, wouldn't be kosher anymore, which of course would be a disaster uh, of of. of huge magnitude. But it turns out some of the products are going to keep their kosher certification. I'm not sure how, like if there'll be a rabbi patrolling that corner of the of the bimbo bakery. But apparently Arnold's rye, Levy's rye, uh, Entenmann's, uh, Thomas's. Is that Thomas's English muffins? Yeah. Uh, Thomas's was going to lose the little 
Wow. We need our kosher English muffins. We need our kosher English muffins. We're not Jews without them. Can I just say that the best thing actually about Bimbo Bakeries is that it's a Mexican company and they sponsor the Guadalajara soccer football team. And Mm -hmm. Chivas Guadalajara is this beautiful white jersey with Bimbo written across the front. Bimbo. It's not like what we are saying it as. It's Bimbo, yeah. But it's still, you can buy a soccer jersey that just says Bimbo on the front. That's awesome. Um, and so people can return to eating the bimbo products or some Eat of them. those Endman's donuts. We're back. I, people were very upset about that. Big thanks to Josh Cross, our producer. He will be back at the end of the show for our Mazel Tovs and our letters. But for our first guest this week, we go back to a time when Liel Leibowitz was still in New York and he sat in with us here at Argo Studios as we interviewed Bill Adler. Have a listen. Our Jewish guest this week is Bill Adler. He is a hip hop expert. He worked at Def Jam in the 80s. He wrote the authorized biography of Run DMC, but he is also a Christmas music fanatic. Each year he puts out a very cool holiday playlist, and he's been kind enough to share this year's with us. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Happy to be here. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas (laughs) to you. And happy Hanukkah. We're way past Hanukkah at this <laughs> what? point. And we're over it. We're over it. <laughs> so early this year. So, Bill, what makes a nice Jewish guy like you, when did you just become obsessed with Christmas? Or is it just music specifically? Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a music lover. And, and what happened is I, uh, I married a Gentile woman. And for the first time in my life, um, I celebrated Christmas. And I found a lot to like about the holiday except for the soundtrack. And so I started to create my own. You, you mean tuning into like Light 100 and hearing the, you know, endless replay of Brenda Lee's Rocking Around the Christmas? Like you wanted to go beyond that? Like, when Always. you say the soundtrack, what was the soundtrack you were getting? The same thing everybody gets. You know, I mean, I happen to be, I by the time, well, just when this airs, uh, I will have turned 67. And, Mazel tov. You know, yeah. Thank you so much. And, uh, um, you know, uh, so I started listening to you know, Christmas music, like everybody else, I was listening all the time. I'm inundated by it, you know, at Christmas, starting in the sixties. And even, first of all, the, 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 the universe of it is kind of lame as it is for almost any idiom. You know, the best stuff is, is great and, and most stuff is mediocre. Okay. And it's certainly true of Christmas, but having said that, you know, there's a, a, a core of, uh, traditional Christmas recordings, and Christmas compositions that are wonderful. And even so, those get beaten the fuck into the dirt through repetition. Right. You don't want to hear them again, ever. At all, all ever. Ruined. Listen, I grew up in Detroit in the 60s when Motown was at its height. And I can't listen to the top 100 Motown songs now. <laughs> so it's not just a Christmas thing. All right, so tell us the history of your playlist. Like, it started off, it was a mixtape you made for a few friends. When did you start it? Why? Who got the first, those first early mixtapes? Well, let, let me just let me just be clear, as I said... I make it for myself to begin with. And, uh, you know, it turns out that first family and then some friends heard about it. And, and, you know, I started to make as many copies as I needed to satisfy requests, basically. And I, I've done it consecutively every year since 1984. And it just, it grows. And, and what I think it speaks to, you know, I'll take some credit for the uh, specificity of my taste 
but also I think that, you know, more generally, lots of people are looking for an alternative to the typical Christmas music. So here's my question. I've been listening to these um, to these playlists um, nonstop, literally, for the last four days. They Getting in the Christmas spirit? fucking amazing. Oh, They're good, amazing, you. amazing, amazing, amazing things. I hear completely what you're saying about how every playlist, every kind of like idiom has its own limited set. But it seems to me Christmas is is way more constrained than others. There really are. I'll tell you why. Twenty or thirty songs, and here is this whole universe that you've discovered. Why can't we hear some of that on the radio? Because Christmas is an emotional time for folks who who celebrate uh, Christmas unironically, and uh, those folks treasure tradition. And so it's like, you know, eating a fruitcake or something. I think pretty generally uh, fruitcake is kind of reviled. But at Christmas time, if it's served to you, you're going to love it because, you know, your mom served it to you at Christmas, you know, when you were a kid. It's the gefilte fish of, Although, of Christmas. I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I prefer gefilte fish to um, fruitcake. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do too. We, let all me, do we could do things. both together, maybe see what let happens. Me, let me try a crazy oh, idea. That's avant-garde. I know that in the early days especially, you you talked about how – um, a lot of these were tunes that you found just, you know, diving into the bins at, at shops that sold vinyl. There are fewer shops that sell vinyl. And sometimes it feels like there's everything on Apple Music or Spotify. Um, That's not true. But it's not true, right? I mean, right. you still, what's the mix of, of of where the different places you find the new stuff now? Well, you know, I, I search all year round and I search, you know, fairly everywhere. And, and as much as I, you know, retain a love for vinyl, I'm not maniacal, you know, and I'm not exclusive and I am, I'm not against you know, the digital world and, and real particularly, you know, I will uh, muddle around on YouTube and find things that I've never heard before. And actually, one of the things I like is the robots are very helpful. So <laughs> seriously, if, if, I, if I find a given song, you know how they'll give you the algorithm will, will spit up uh, a whole column of, of similar songs and their, and their opinion. And a lot of it is, is bullshit, but sometimes there's a gem. So. so how much of this is new and by young artists? That are, aren't just covering older songs, but just... Well, you know, they, it, it depends on what you mean by new. I mean, you know, to me, I find, you know, records I haven't heard before, recordings I haven't heard before all the time. Some of them might have been recorded in the 30s. So that's new to me. But you're, you're talking about things recorded, say, in the last five yeah, years? Yeah, people write yeah, new like, Christmas classics. Is it just like Ariana Grande decides that she needs to do a Christmas album and she's like, okay, I'm going to get, uh, I'll be home for Christmas. You know, I'll sort of get the five sta- standards. Well, yeah, but you know, that's, I mean... <laughs> You'd hope that a creative artist is is going to be truly creative, you know, when presented with an opportunity like this. But some of them, some of them, I'd say the majority of them, do the the uh, conventional thing, and you know, maybe it's not just a a function of creativity per se. You know, there are marketing concerns and and uh, respect for tradition and all the rest of it. But you know, I'm I'm open to it. You know, is there going to be a wonderful new version of Jingle Bells or White Christmas that I hear? If so, it makes it. You are. If you somebody, would still listen. So if, if to follow Stephanie's example, Ariana Grande puts out a Christmas album, you would still be like, okay, I'll give it a listen. I do. Huh. Yeah. I'll listen. And I reject things very quickly. <laughs> I, I, likewise, I accept things very quickly. You know, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been a musical lover my whole life. And, you know, typically if I put, let's say it's a record, I'm going to describe this in antique terms, but if I put the needle down on a record and, and you know, I don't have a glimmer of hope inside of the first 15 seconds or so, I'm pulling the needle off. You bail. Done. You give a novel 25 pages, no more. So is there any track that you discovered 
um, that really kind of resonated. You know, something what, this year? You, no, just in, in the last. Yeah, like what's a great discovery? Yeah, like something oh, that I can't really believe I didn't know this one. You. Well, here's what leapt to mind. Uh, there's a uh, a guy named Freddie King who kind of followed in the footsteps of, let's say, B.B. King. He was a great, great guitarist and songwriter and singer uh, whose career began in the early 60s. And he was, I mean, for what it's worth, he was tremendously influential to all the British uh, invasion kids. But uh, he wrote a song called uh, Christmas Tears, which is just absurdly magnificent to me, to my taste. You know, uh, it's... It's beautifully written. It's beautifully sung. It's beautifully pro- produced. He plays the hell out of it. And, you know, is it the national anthem of Christmas? It's not. But for me, it never fails to move me. What about that Sharon Jones Hanukkah song I, I, a few I, years ago? Well, a few years ago, I put it on my Christmas, uh, you know, I, I put it on the Christmas jollies. So I like then, it. But, you know, I will tell you this. And once again, it's that Jewish conspiracy in effect, because I believe that all her bandmates and producers happen to be Yids. And... <laughs> They wrote that song. And so, you know, for her to talk about, you know, my, my grandpa Saul and, 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 <laughs> and, and the rest of it, no, that's not her grandfather. But did you like, that was Eight Days of Christmas. That was, that's, I, I hadn't it. heard that before. Yeah. You, you had not heard no. that? No, I'm saying that's an original song written by, you know, a Jewish composer for his black uh, associate. So what is it with Jews and Christmas songs? Because I, when I started working at Tablet Jewish Magazine, the first Christmas rolls around and it's like, did you know? All the Christmas songs were written by Jews. You know, there's White Christmas. There's also the chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That there's right. there's Santa Baby, the Silver Bells, and you're like, what? you know why? I'll tell you why. Because there's you know, is is Christmas a religious holiday? It is for those who are religious. Okay, is it also a secular holiday in America? Likewise, you know, uh, it is. And so, um, you know, Irving Berlin. You know, I, I thought, you know, the way he dealt with not, not just Christmas, but Easter is, is kind of clever. So he writes a Christmas song called White Christmas. And, you know, does Jesus make an appearance? He does not. Basically, it's a weather report. <laughs> right. It's snowing outside of Christmas time, okay? <laughs> Likewise, Easter Parade. He wrote Easter Parade, okay? Is it about the resurrect- uh, resurrection of the Lord? It is not. It is about... It's, it's about a fashion show. So now I think is a great point of conversation to note and reveal to our listeners that you were, you were involved in, present for the writing of what I strongly believe is the greatest Christmas song ever written, Christmas and Hollis, uh, by Run DMC. Wow. Tell us about that, that masterpiece, because I've heard a lot of stories about how that came to be. Okay, so by 1987, I'd been making my Christmas jollies for several years, and uh, I was the director of publicity at at Rush Artist Management, and we managed Run DMC, among others. Which is a job you kind of stumble upon, right? You you came here to be a writer. You took this great, you know, test at Time Warner Billing or Time Life magazines, and then didn't work out, and you kind of found your way into hip hop, more or less. I'd been, you know, I, I've always been a music lover and, you know, starting in 73 or so, I worked more or less continuously as a, a, a writer and a critic about music. And by um, 1979, when the first rap records came out, I was the pop music critic at the Boston Herald. And these records were fairly astonishing to me. Uh, great records. Hit it! And one of them 
uh, the, the, really probably the second rap record I ever heard, certainly the uh, second big national pop hit uh, rap record, was by a guy named Curtis Blow, and the song was called Christmas Rapping, and it came out in time for Christmas of 1979, and it was such a, a phenomenon that they were still playing it in February. You know, so that's that's by 79, okay? Uh, a year later, I've moved to New York, and I'm still paying attention. And uh, the same Curtis Blow, who happens to be a New Yorker, he's from Harlem, uh, has a new record out. It's called The Breaks, and it was a national hit, uh, a bigger hit than Christmas Rappin'. And so I, I went to my editor at the Daily News and I said, look, this is a local story, let me write it. And he said, go ahead. So at that point, I started to hear about Kurt's manager, Russell Simmons. Break it up, break it up, break it up! 1984, Ronald freaking Reagan is running for re- a re-election. And uh, I was not a fan. <laughs> and I was paying enough attention to rap by that, that point to think to myself, geez, if, if we wrote an anti-Reagan rap, maybe we could rap Ronald Reagan out of a second term. That was my brilliant idea. So I wrote a rap and I took it to Russ. And Russell was very kind. I don't think he thought very much of my rhymes, but he said, well, what else are you up to? And I said, uh, well, I've got ideas for movies and I've been working with this guy who used to work with John Lennon and yada, 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 yada. And, and Russell perked right up and he said, I want to make movies with my artists. Why don't you come work with me? And I said, fine. And he had no idea what I was supposed to do for him. I was his second full-time employee. Uh, And after hanging out for a week or two, I told him, I said, look, you don't have a publicist here. I've worked as a critic for 10 years. I know the publicist shtick. Let me do that for you. And Russell said, go ahead. So in 1987, um, I was the one who got the call about uh, this Christmas opportunity, it was for what would be the first uh, installation of this series called uh, A Very Special Christmas that was sponsored by the Special Olympics. It, as I said, by then I'm paying attention to uh, Christmas records. And so when I heard about this, uh, I knew, as we discussed, that, um, you know, most of the artists were going to just cover, you know, a standard. And I, I, uh, I called Run and D and I said, listen, you have this opportunity. Why not, you know, cut a new song? Here's a concept for you, Christmas and Hollis. And both of them said, okay. And Run, <laughs> Run sat down and wrote something and, and D wrote something. And they went into the studio uh, to record it. And I went with them. And... Um, at that point, it was, it was up to me kind of to t- I also had ideas. I had a crate full of uh, Christmas records by then. I brought that crate, crate into the studio, and, and Jay, Jam Master Jay, kind of uh, fingered his way through it. And he pulled out uh, ver- various artists' album on Atlantic Records, you know, R&B Christmas. And he put the needle down once. On a track, he, did, he wasn't feeling it. He put it down on another track, he wasn't feeling it. He put it down a third time. And he heard, you know, the, the, the uh, intro to this one song, and, he, and he's kind of feeling it. He picked up the needle, put it back down, and played it again. And by the time he played it for the third time, you saw Run and D 
Comfort. Already, already beginning to. They, 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 they were in another room smoking, you know, smoking a joint. <laughs> they, they, they came. It's, it, it was as if they, you know, it was like I don't know if you ever saw. You guys are so young. I don't know if you ever saw the Heckle and Jekyll cartoons. Mm-hmm. But there yeah, were a yeah. couple, there are a couple of black crows, and you yeah. see them in the sky, and they're, they're, you know, shooting the shit, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, this, this aroma wafts up into the sky from some <laughs> pies on a windowsill, you know, and you see the crows bomb down to the windowsill. That was running deep. While the boys are out to play Look at I ain't like old Saint Nick They heard this record, and it was enough. They came and they didn't say anything, but all three of them knew that would be the track, and it happened to be uh, Clarence Carter uh, singing a song called Backdoor Santa. And that was, that was the... And from there to, to MTV, to Die Hard, to Less Than Zero. I mean, that song's everywhere. People like it still. It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mom's cooking chicken in collard greens. Rice and stuff and macaroni and cheese. And Santa put gifts under Christmas trees. Decorate the house with... Bill Adler, if people are to... If they're interested in hearing this year's mix, how does, how does a random Jew of the public get to hear this year's mix. Well, happily, uh, I'm interviewed year after year by the podcast called The Cypher. And uh, as part of the interview, they post the sequence. And Amazing. by the time this interview runs, probably that in- interview will run and anybody who has a computer can hear the thing. It's and like 2018 we, is a strong year. Yeah, It's like we know a guy at The Cypher. It's like <laughs> it's like our producer, Josh Cross, also works at The Cypher. Bill Adler, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. And, and Bill, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And a very happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Josh, if people want to hear the playlist from Bill Adler, where should they go? I'm going to post links to the last five years or so in the Facebook group, as well as some other interviews that we've done with him, because he's just an awesome dude. And if people aren't on the Facebook group and really need them, you can just email Josh Cross at jcross at tabletmag.com. With a K. With a K. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Two live shows coming up January 15th, a free show at Washington Hebrew Congregation. We have the guest of the century, Representative-elect Katie Porter, an old, old friend of mine, um, once a mild-mannered law professor, now heading to Congress from California's 45th District. She is, I think, going to be the only single mother of young children in Congress maybe ever. I could be getting that wrong, but uh, but but she has like three fairly young kids. She is divorced and she's heading to Congress with amazing progressive values. She knocked off an incumbent uh, who deserved to be knocked off by my lights anyway. But the point is, that, and this is going to be like a week, 10 days after she's inaugurated. She's inaugurated January 3rd. And then I think her first, certainly her first interfaith event. 
certainly her first event with the Jews is going to be at Washington Hebrew Congregation. You gotta start them early. Gotta start them early. This is a show being uh, co-sponsored by the Association of Reformed Jewish Educators. It's a free show at Washington Hebrew Congregation. This uh, 7:30 p.m. January 15th. Go to whctemple.org for more info. And we're trying to book uh, maybe um, a uh, a non-Gentile congresswoman elect as well. I'm hoping for a congressional uh, blowout that night, but uh, we'll see. And then um, Saturday, February 2nd, we'll be at the Stroom JCC in Seattle with uh, Dan Savage doing a co-show with the Savage Lovecast. We want to bring your questions. We're already getting some rolling in. We need your sexy time questions. We need your questions appropriate for Dan Savage, the world's leading sex, love, romance columnist. You can send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You could also call them in and then you could like disguise your voice a little bit if you're worried about anonymity. Um, Josh can also put a weird filter over your voice when we play them so that nobody knows it's you. But don't be shy. We have several questions already. We want several more to choose from. 914-570-4869. They can be juice sex related or just sex related or just love just he get, does a lot of just relationship advice how do you call someone how do you ask someone out should I stay in this relationship should I not go listen to Savage Lovecast to prep for that show and get your tickets February 2nd Stroom JCC in Seattle and Liel was also here for the Stephen D'Souza interview have a listen our Gentile of the week is a very special guest. He is Stephen D'Souza, uh, a producer, a director, and a screenwriter of basically every film that ever made me want to go to the movies and love them, including Commando, including Judge Dredd, including 48 Hours, and most famously and reverentially, Die Hard. And, and sir, here I say this without a trace of irony. If we had to preserve just one document to show the world what America's spirit was about, to my mind, it's not the Constitution or Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address. It is diehard. It is the most perfect American film ever made. Hello. Welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> uh, gee, I was looking so forward to this interview. I was so thrilled. Uh, and now I see there's uh, been a little bit of a communications uh, uh, a breakdown, whereas uh, I always go by <laughs> movie quotes. Uh, and what we have here is a failure to communicate if I can date myself by doing a Paul <laughs> Newman movie. Some um, men you just can't reach. Uh, no, uh, I, I don't qualify for this interview. I am not your Gentile. Somehow you guys got the impression that long ago in my buried in my past were refugees of the Spanish Inquisition. No, no, uh, I'm Jewish. My parents are Jewish. My grandparents going back to like not oh, wow. Gimbal, but wait, you know, D'Souza, listen, man, this has happened to us before. <laughs> First of all, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference to us. We have Jews and Gentiles on this. Well, show. no, but now you have to go out and get a now you have to go out and get a real Gentile guest. No, 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 no. This is no no no. We 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 live in the moment and we, you know, we try to have a Jew and a Gentile on every show. It has happened that sometimes this has happened before where people whose last names are kind of sneaky uh end up being end up being Jewish. And we just we just roll with it. We are fallible, okay? And and our audience knows us warts and all, and sometimes I mean we should know by now that Hollywood screenwriter genius probably a Jew and yet here we are <laughs> we figure there could be a Gentile and there so, right I won't repeat the whole introduction but I will just say 
our Jewish guest of the week <laughs> is Stephen D'Souza. Uh, but wait, but we're obviously going to play that whole thing. Oh, I mean, absolutely, you, you know. we are. Uh, so uh, welcome, welcome again to the show, uh, Brother D'Souza, <laughs> D'Souza. Uh, who also happened to write. Uh, you know, not only is this the greatest American movie, but it also is. Uh, you know, probably without any doubt, the greatest Christmas movie. It's Christmas. This is John. Nice bear. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! ...he'll never forget. Ho, ho, ho. I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. Merry Christmas. Die Hard. This is their idea of Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. Which I think is an opinion uh, that a lot of people argue about. But but do you agree with right? Uh, yes, I agree with it, and uh, it's uh, we can we can dive, take a deep dive into it. Uh, this debate's been going on for a while. Uh, I usually have my um, my bubble of fame. I mean, my idea of fame. I just want to be famous enough. I've achieved my level of fame, which is where the key major D's recognize me. That's that's all I need. You know, every time I think I'm sort of like famous, famous, um, if I go to Comic-Con, if I go to Comic-Con, which I do sometimes, and someone with all their like loot bags is walking towards me and I see uh, their eyes open and they go and they uh, recognition. Uh, this is never some gorgeous young lady in a cosplay costume. It's like the guy who stole Woody in Toy Story. Yeah, or it's comic <laughs> it's, book guy. It's a guy who looks I, like I me, in other words. <laughs> the, the, well, I, I, this is a. I, I have to imagine that with radio, you, you put a you put a picture in my head. A fat I want to bearded say, what you, Jew. I want to say, what are you wearing? But don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is something that's been that, as you say, this debate's been going on a while, and I've even seen it reported that Joel Silver showed up on on the set and said this is going to be played every year at Christmas on cable. He abso- that, that, absolutely did say that. He absolutely did say that. He was right so, about that. I mean, why? I mean, why not less than zero, which also begins at Christmas? But I don't think anyone watches that at Christmas time. You know, why this one? Well, I think it started out with the idea that this is uh, sort of. Uh, the antidote to the usual um, uh, cloying, saccharine, you know, let's all learn a lesson uh, uh, opening shot of most Christmas movies where this one, that sneaks up on you. And, of course, it's uh, the kids could say, it is a Christmas movie, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> and it is very much about the, the triumph of the human spirit and family and joy and peace on Earth. Over, over Hans Gruber. I also want to say that one of the great things about this movie is that, so my friend Seth and I have a sort of a, a running list of the great movie dicks, like who plays a good villain. And Rickman, of course, is near the top of that. But Paul Gleason and William Atherton also play great movie dicks throughout 80s movies. And somehow this movie actually has, when you have, it's the only movie with Rickman, Gleason, who plays the idiot cop, right? And Atherton, who plays the news reporter, are all in this movie. Like the asshole quotient of the villains in this movie <laughs> is simply through the room. And I don't know if that's a testament to Silver or to the casting director or who had the vision to make the bad guys so bad, but it's 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 be- beautifully executed. Uh, yeah, that's 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 Jackie Birch, who I've worked with on several pictures. Uh, uh, she was uh, the casting director on this picture, and she gets kudos for that. You know, like in other words, a lot of people would say, "Let's get one of these assholes," <laughs> but she would have the she'd be bold enough to say, "Let's get two of them." <laughs> uh, she also was responsible, I think, for the unique look of the. Uh, the, of, of Hans Gruber's crew, because when Alan Rickman came in 
uh, well, first of all, she alerted the, the uh, uh, producers, the directors, all of us to Alan Rickman's existence. He had never done a motion picture, and she saw him in New York uh, on Broadway in, uh, I'll, I'll garble this, Les Liaisons Dangerous. <laughs> I don't know how my, you know, seventh grade French teacher, I hope she's not listening. Anyway, um, uh, but when Rickman came in for a uh, costume fitting, and they brought out all this uh, military mufti uh, kind of... Uh, Commando gear, you know, with the web belt and uh, yeah, yeah. tactical jacket and stuff like that. He says, I look ridiculous wearing this. And uh, <laughs> that inspired her. Uh, of course, he was had a lead, lead role. And then she said, "Let's." they all came from Europe. Let's make them look like fashion models. <laughs> uh, so uh, that was actually her quote. And uh, she came in and, and argued for that. Yeah, I mean, she found one guy who looked just like Fabio. I mean, it's really amazing how. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. So if someone comes up to you and says, like, I've never seen Die Hard. What's it about? What do you say? How long have you been in this country? <laughs> I'm just, I want, in case any of our listeners haven't seen it. Well, Die Hard is sort of like White Christmas with guns. <laughs> uh, so, talking about guns, look, uh, I am I'm, I'm very earnest here. Literally, my entire childhood has been going to, I grew up in Israel, going to one really kind of rinky cinema in Tel Aviv and watching week after week with my dad everything you ever wrote. Um, and and these films shape my entire worldview. And to my great chagrin, they don't make films like Commando anymore. You know, there seems to be like a real sea change in, in the way Hollywood makes movies. Why is that? What what happened to us? Well, I think that I think what happened to uh, Commando and also to Rambo and pictures like that was Die Hard. I mean, by the time we got to Die Hard, the uh, heroes of the movies had become these uh, roid raged uh, specimens that were, uh, you know, one-man armies. If you take a, a kind of a seminal scene from uh, Rambo, uh, the uh, the evil commies grab Sylvester Stallone. They, like, uh, you, know, you know, they beat him with, like, clubs. Uh, they strap him to um, rings of a mattress. I don't know what the, how the mattress got in the middle of the jungle, but anyway. Uh, and then they put car batteries on him. He breaks loose. He kills everybody in the room. Then he grabs the microphone, and calls bad guy headquarters and says, they're all dead, and I'm coming for you next. When uh, we sent the script out uh, of Die Hard uh, for casting, in the wake of that, in the wake of Commando, uh, uh, these kind of roles, uh, in comparison, this character seemed like weak uh, because he was a normal person. So, you know, the litany of people who turn down this part, here's a good bar bet. You're in a bar, and you say to somebody, you know that character uh, who's the hero of um, uh, Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3 and Die, Die Hard with a Vengeance? Uh, who was the first person to play that part and in what picture? And they'll, of course, say Bruce Willis and Die Hard. And you grab their money and run out real fast before they break your thumbs when you say, no, Frank Sinatra. Because okay. Die Hard is based on a novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, which is a sequel to an earlier novel by the same author, Roderick Thorpe, called The Detective, which was made as a movie in the 60s with Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra is the Bruce Willis part. Uh, and in fact, we had to offer this part to uh, Sinatra first. He was contractually bound to, to any sequel. Fortunately, he said, I'm too old and too rich for this. Otherwise, the chases <laughs> in the building would have been on rascal scooters. <laughs> and the line would have been, yippee Mother lover. Ring-a-ding, kid. <laughs> Ring-a-ding, kid. <laughs> you've, you've made uh, all these celebrated films, but, but you made two films uh, that I have felt for decades uh, were, were horribly mistreated. 
and really two of the most underrated uh, movies ever written and made. Uh, one of which I believe you even directed as well, uh, Street Fighter and Hudson Hawk. Do you have love for both of these movies? Well, you say I, I love all my children, you know, even the one that, you know, uh, keeps sneaking, uh, uh, sneaking out at night uh, to go to bars. I would say probably uh, Street Fighter a little more because even though a lot of things went wrong, you know, the things that went right uh, were in my control. Uh, the other picture uh, was... Uh, sort of uh, uh, a wild ride, let's put it that way. Uh, at one point, um, uh, I thought I was done with the film, and then the studio called me up and said, "You got to go. You got to go to. Uh, you got to go to Italy, uh, uh, and you and because uh, and and get the script on track." And I'm thinking, you know, that's not my job. But the, if you know the old uh, uh, Aesop's fable about who will bell the cat. When you have a, a, a film that is, uh, you know, big expensive uh, uh, production uh, with a lot of uh, producers and uh, one of the problems in Hollywood has become that everything's so expensive now that it takes several entities to make anything. So the day when somebody said, I like this story, we're shooting it, you know, and it's a one person decision. Um, rarely happens now. So, Stephen, before we let you go and get back to sleep, because I know it's very early over there in Hollywood, besides Die Hard, what is your favorite Christmas movie? What is my favorite Christmas movie? Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. I guess I guess White Christmas because I, I because uh, last year when this debate was going on for the first time and when Jay Cat Tapper uh, got into it and uh, contact, contacted me on uh, Twitter, uh, uh, probably my probably my greatest moment of uh, notoriety uh, on his uh, coattails. Um, I made a chart up to uh, comparing Die Hard to White Christmas. To prove that Die Hard is even more Christmassy than um, <laughs> White Christmas, so uh, if I could do the chart, okay. So uh, here's the chart. This is a Christmas movie or not checklist. Takes place during Christmas holiday. Die Hard check entirely. White Christmas only the first and closing scenes. Is the setting a Christmas party? Die Hard entirely. White Christmas only the final scene. The number of Christmas songs three. Die Hard has Let It Snow, Winter Wonderland, and Christmas in Hollis. White Christmas has two. White Christmas and Snow. And Snow is even arguably not a Christmas song. Snow, 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 right? Any more than Jingle Bells. Par the party venue is threatened in Die Hard by terrorists. In White Christmas by foreclosure on the, on the venue. <laughs> There's, who's the broadcaster with a hidden agenda? In Die Hard, it's Dick Thornburg. In White Christmas, it's Johnny Grant, the stand-in for Ed Sullivan, who is part of the deceit on the general. Uh, the German ringleader is Hans Gruber. In White Christmas, it's Hitler. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the, there's the all-important category. Does the Christmas phrase, IPKA motherfucker, get uttered, uh, which I believe it does not in White Christmas. Die Hard No, no, check. no. Well, in the, well, in the, in the uncut version, you, yes, you can find the outtakes on the internet if you look carefully enough. Uh, then we have the government incompetence. The government incompetence in Die Hard is the FBI overreacts. In White Christmas, it's the Pentagon fires General Waverly. <laughs> and finally, and this is uh, the Christ-like sacrifice, in Die Hard is, is running barefoot over broken glass to save everyone. In White Christmas, it's Danny Kaye nobly giving his uh, upgrading Vera Allen's train tickets. 
This has been, I feel like, a, a three-minute film school. By the way, what is the origin of, of that famous catchphrase? Uh, the from, origin from of that movie? famous catchphrase is um, uh, when I first met Bruce uh, and we uh, started talking, I realized we grew up about 30 miles apart. Uh, he's uh, six years younger than me, the same point spread as my younger brother. Uh, and we started talking about all the pro uh, our childhood, how we used to play, how making these kind of movies is like playing army under the boardwalk in Atlantic City. Um, uh, and uh, we talked about the TV shows we, we used to watch. And one of them was the Roy Rogers TV show. I forget, Roy Rogers used to say, uh, happy trails at the end of the show, which is what he says to, uh, to Hans as Hans goes out the window. And uh, Roy Rogers also would say, has had a song, he sang one of his pictures, uh, yippee which is the, the Western term. Uh, so that's how it got in the picture. Now, I wrote, uh, yippee asshole. <laughs> and Bruce, as an ad lib, uh, did one version with um, motherfucker. We can say motherfucker on radio. This yes, isn't we can. radio. This is, this is a, a, a podcast. Correct. So that was the origin of Yippie. So Bruce ad-libbed in the motherfucker for the asshole and, and you know, a catchphrase was born. Uh, exactly. And, and of course, there's a whole game you people play like with the replacement for on the air. Uh, you know, like uh, Melon Farmer. You know, that one Yippie Kaye Melon Farmer is one of the uh, um, replacements for uh, a TV broadcast. Oh, and they showed oh, on network TV. Yippie Kaye Melon Farmer. Um, Steven, we are <laughs> so grateful that you got up so early uh, on the West Coast to be our, uh, we thought you were a Gentile of the week. It turns out even better Covert Jew of the Week. It's a Christmas miracle. Thank you for being on Unorthodox, yeah. Stephen D'Souza. I, 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 I can't believe there wasn't, you know, any, there wasn't any Jewish conversation at all. Uh, I, I was, I, I was like, you know, trying. I was definitely trying to find my old uh, thirty-three and a third Haftorah record. Can, yeah, can so you do your Haftorah? Like, uh, yeah, do your Haftorah for so us. I, so I, so I could. No, 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 no. I <laughs> don't make me uh, do that. I, um, I stumbled through the uh, broker for the for the honor candles. My my daughter had to uh, had to pitch in. <laughs> um, I'm supposed to get to ask one question, right? Yes, yes, yes. Isn't that a thing? <laughs> You're you gonna ask do? the Gentile question uh, of the week as a Jew. Do it, do it, man. Uh, oh, 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 is that what? It's, That's I'm already some crossing chutzpah. the streams here. Oh, now, now that there's there's something we didn't get into is um, uh, I did not hear much Yiddish as a child. Because I mainly got it from nightclub comedians, um, because my dad's family they had been uh, they'd been speaking English for like you know four hundred years in uh, in the British West Indies, uh, and my and my father had six brothers and like multiple cousins, so I was surrounded by all these Jamaicans as they called themselves, with their you know wacky foods and wacky accents, um, and my mother had a single brother in Philadelphia uh, who only had two kids. So uh, I'd be in Hollywood and like um, uh, Glenn Larson, who was a Mormon, you know, he wants to he'd say in the meeting, uh, we got Gornish. And I go, what's that? He says, wait a minute. Didn't you take Yom Kippur off? How do you not know what that means? You know, so I picked up more Yiddish working for Gentiles in Hollywood than I ever did at home. But anyway, here's my here's my question. OK, so isn't you know, isn't jerk chicken the traditional uh, Passover meal? Absolutely. You know. We'll have to have you back in, in, in Passover to talk about that. It was at our gathering. So, so I'm going to go to the exotic Jewish food. There is a Jewish recipe, a regional Jewish recipe called Gid. So my question for your audience is, what is Gid? Do you know, Leo? I have no idea. So here's what we're going to do for you. Usually there's a question we can answer. But in this case, we actually, you've stumped the internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts. So we, we're going to, this interview is going to air on our, on our Christmas show in, in two weeks. And then we're going to come back sometime in the new year and for the week in our first or second show. And we're going to answer for you. What is Gid? And, and 
thousands of of curious Jews and Gentiles in listener land are going to learn thanks to you. Sir, this has been uh, an honor, a pleasure, and we'll have to have you back to talk Jamaican and Jamaican, Jamaican, Jamaican cuisine and, and everything else. And in the meanwhile, uh, we'll we'll be watching um, Die Hard again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Thank you, sir. Again and again. We can also talk his Die Hard to a Christmas movie. It also takes place at Christmas. That's next year's conversation. <laughs> next year's All right. interview. Thank you, sir. That was Stephen D'Souza, our Jewish guest. Jewish guest of the week. Very Jewish. Very Jewish. Hard to get a Gentile around these parts. <laughs> Even when we try. <laughs> Even when we try. J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Back to the mailbox this week. We've been away from the mailbox for a while. Uh, it gets out of office. Yeah, its feelings get hurt when we're away from it. So we've returned uh, with a vengeance. Two great letters about our superstition episode. Here's the first Dear Unorthodox, I am 15 and I live in Ra'anana, Israel. I go to school at Pelech Tel Aviv, which is in Tel Aviv, about an hour bus ride away, so I have a lot of time for listening to podcasts. I used to listen only to science podcasts until my mom introduced me to Unorthodox. She's been a fan since the beginning. And now it's my favorite podcast, too. Every Thursday, I get on the bus at around 6.48 in the morning, as usual, and then I wait clutching my phone until 7 a.m. Israel time, when Unorthodox is usually uploaded. The second it comes up, I start listening, trying to get through as much as I can in the morning and finishing it on the ride home from school. I'm always curious if I'm the first listener of the day. Usually, on mornings before tests, my friend and I study, but on Thursdays, she knows that Unorthodox tops studying. I love that we're destroying academic careers in several time zones. I really enjoyed last week's episode on superstitions, but one group of superstitions I wish you had mentioned were the ones made up to keep people, especially women, from doing certain things. For example, if a woman drinks wine from the Havdalah, she will grow a beard. We didn't even know that one. I also love how funny and casual your podcast is, and you have such interesting guests like Rabbi Sachs. Come visit Ra'anana, Yaira Granoff. I love that. 
we do want to come visit you. Can I just say shout out to all the moms? Because that story of moms making their kids who are skeptical and like, mom, no, I don't want to listen. And then they listen. They, oh, my God. And and it's even. We you know, hear that. I love that moms and daughters time. are listening. That yeah. makes me and, so and, happy. And sons and stuff. No, yeah. but I'm just saying no, like yeah, different yeah. generations. Bringing the generations closer together since 2015. Listen to your mother. Yeah, listen to your mother. The other thing I have to say, though, I did, my mother-in-law did point out a superstition that her family has that I've been, you know, inculcated with now that I've joined the Cohen clan is you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to nap on Rosh Hashanah because you'll sleep away the new year. You can nap on Yom Kippur, but not Rosh Hashanah. Interesting. Which is a problem for me because I always go to their house and just fall asleep just immediately <laughs> <laughs> on a couch. Because other people's houses are so comfortable. They're, yeah, I love what it. What is it about other people's houses that are so comfortable? Maybe they just made it up for you. No, no, it's real. <laughs> like, right, that like shit when, is real. Like, actually, the code tradition is when someone marries to the family, they make up a ridiculous superstition and be like, what? What kind of... And I'm always like, so sleepy on Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> All right. Here's here's another great one. <clears throat> This is from Batya Minkin. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. You guys are fantastic. The superstition episode reminded me of a practice that I'm not sure falls under the category of superstition, but I thought you might want to hear about it nonetheless. I'm not very superstitious, but there is something called the prayer for lost objects, and I swear to God it's some kind of black magic. If you can't find something, you wash your hands, give a coin to Tadaka, and say a prayer. Then you go look for your lost object. And she gives us a link to to the prayer uh, at the Chabad website. Guys, I know this sounds crazy, but this has never failed me. I've used it tens of times over the course of my life, but two episodes stick with me. When I was a teen, I couldn't find a CD I loved. I said the prayer, and then the next morning, my brother came into my room looking confused and holding the CD I was looking for. And he said, do you have any idea why this was in my closet? And recently, I was getting my three-year-old ready for school, and I couldn't find his left shoe anywhere. I live in an 81-square-meter apartment, so there are only so many places it could have been, and it was literally nowhere. Finally, I decided to say the prayer, and not 10 minutes later, I found the shoe next to the leg of the dining room table, a place I had obviously already checked multiple times. All the best, Batya. All right, so the prayer for lost objects, there you have it. Batya says it's real. I'm skeptical, but you know what? I lose things all the time. And so I will have a chance to check this out soon. And now, a call for advice. Greetings, Leslie writes. I'm one of the odd lurking Gentiles who adores your show. I have a holidays-related question. I hope you could help me. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. And while I've long since moved abroad, one way I keep in contact with family and friends is by sending annual Christmas cards. My husband and I make them by hand and add a picture and a short update of our lives over the past 12 months. Every year, though, I'm struck about what to do with my Jewish friends. As someone who takes the Christ rather than the simple Xmas of the season seriously, my cards usually sport a nativity scene. And sending a card emblazoned with, hark, the Savior is born, just doesn't seem kosher. I could, of course, go for something neutral like happy holidays or season's greetings, but that feels like a lame cop-out. So my question is twofold. First, do Jewish people send Hanukkah cards to each other? And second, would it be appropriate for me to do so as a goy? Sincerely, Leslie. The first thing I want to say is that making your own very Christian Christmas card by hand and adding a picture is the most goyish thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And I mean that as a compliment. That's like, that's what I want my Christians to do is to sit crafting their Christmas cards. I like that a lot. Yeah. Now, you have two questions you've given to us. First, do Jewish people send Hanukkah cards to each other? Josh Cross and Stephanie Butnick, what is, uh, like, uh, we have not talked about this beforehand, right? What is your experience of that question? Do we send Hanukkah cards? I have never sent Hanukkah cards. We have sent New Year's cards a couple of times, but at we don't... Rosh Hashanah or Gentile New Year's? Gentile New Year's. Okay, interesting. Calendar, uh, Roman calendar. Roman New calendar. Year. Gregorian New yes. Year's. Okay. Um, but 
it's not a thing that I grew up with. I know other people do. It's just it's it's a very American goyish kind yeah. of thing. It doesn't bother me. No. But, but Stephanie? I, think, I think Jewish families definitely send like a happy holidays card. I think that as as I think what Leslie does is 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 more rare, right? A very explicitly Christian message. A lot of the times you get like happy holidays, seasons greetings from Jews, from anyone, right? Like you don't get very Christian, Chris. Like you. I, but her question is like Jews to Jews. Are we happy no, Hanukkah? I think Cardi? I think it, it is in response to Christmas. It's the way that Hanukkah has sort of mushroomed in response to Christmas. I will say that I am on the Christmas card list for a few of my friends' families who aren't Jewish, and I love it so much. Yeah. I get the O'Neill Christmas card every year. It makes me immeasurably happy. Oh. And it doesn't. It doesn't say. I don't even know what it says. It probably says like Happy Holidays. But I don't. I wouldn't care if it said Merry Christmas. So- I just want to say, first of all, I think, and I think I'm getting agreement here, that Hanukkah cards are not really a thing. That Jews who buy into the season yeah. will often send a happy holiday thing or the family letter. And let's, don't get me started. I love, the, like, I want more of the letters that have, like, you know, my wife got certified as you a do physical those videos, therapist. Right? Cancer's in remission again. Yeah, cancer's in remission. And so-and-so made JV field hockey. And um, we, my wife does a video, a holiday video like that goes that. to select uh, people. Um, and... Um, but we, a lot of Jews do Rosh Hashanah cards. That is a thing, is happy holidays at Rosh yeah. Hashanah. So if you're a little more sort of Jewy, the Rosh Hashanah card is the annual card that you would do. I will say for myself, and I think this gets to um, to the question you're really asking, is like, can you send Christ- Christmas cards to Jews? I'm with Stephanie. Like, I love, like, the more Christian, the better. I think not all Jews feel that way. I don't know. I mean, like, Hark the Savior is Born is intense. It's a little preachy. <laughs> but I'm like, if that's your card and I know you and I know you've put this together by hand and these are your values, I would never be like, totally. ick. Ick. If, like, I think if... I if think, you're really hearkening to a real savior in your mind, bring like, it. I think it depends on who the person is and how well you know them. I feel like you probably know. It seems like if you're asking, it's probably people who wouldn't want it. Right. I, I felt like the other question that was buried in there was whether or not she could get or whether or not they could get different ones to send to. And that's totally respectful and cool also. If you got a, a Hanukkah card from a practicing Christian friend of yours, because that that's one option. That would actually be very sweet. It's super like yeah. they're trying even if they don't. Like that's like an extra step. But it seems like of, that's Leslie going to a lot of work after hand making a Christmas card. Leslie, I'm actually going to throw this out there. I think you should ask them. I think you should uh, like, oh, pick, I like that. pick a few people. It sounds like you have maybe five to ten Jewish friends on your list. Pick the three or four or five whom you know the best who are the most kind of like chill about this stuff and just say, look, I got a question. Like, you know, I'm pretty Jesus-y. I know you're pretty Jewy. What card would you like to get from me? No, just like, do you feel comfortable? I have a Christmas card. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Would you would like to receive it? Yeah. And and if not, would you, what if you got a Hanukkah card from me? And but I will report say, back to us. Leslie, please send us one of these Christmas cards. We would really like to receive it. Send it to Unorthodox Podcast at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. That, and that's our mailbox. And now I that it's that out there, so send us mail. Send us ma- now that it's out there. I want your holiday letters. I want to know yeah, about like Uncle Schloimi's gout. I want to know about your daughter Mackenzie's, uh, you know, getting cast in the school play. Put us on the list. It's the sound of music, and there are no Nazis. <laughs> Mazel tovs. Uh Josh Cross sitting in the Liel chair today. Do you have a Mazel tov to offer? Mazel tov to Judy Gold and her son, who graduated from Indiana University. Judy Gold, or- unorthodox guest extraordinaire. And 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 and. Upper West Side friend who I run into randomly. She's awesome. You see Judy around? I ran into Judy in a sub shop <laughs> once. And she's like, oh my God, isn't Jim Martin amazing? And we were quelling over Jim. It was wonderful. That's amazing. Stephanie? I have some shout outs. Um, my new friend, Caroline Radnowski, she's a listener of the podcast. Um, and she was in town for for training. And the person she was sitting next to at work 
is Ali Gostanian, who was wearing an unorthodox sweatshirt because the, their office is very cold. So she's a fan, too. And it was very fun to to meet. I didn't meet Ali, but I met Caroline. And she's the best. I have a couple. One is to unorthodox listener and correspondent Nate Leibovitz. He sent a letter this week that was so touching about what we meant to him and his his listening life, but also his life. And I just, it was, you know, we get a lot of letters and we read them all and many of them are moving. And I just, for some reason, Nate is on my mind this morning. Also to unorthodox superstar guest Tova Felchu, uh, the actor, she had her first grandson, Raphael. So mazel tov to Tova and her husband, Andy, and the whole mishpucha. That is amazing. And finally, uh, my daughter Ellie had a couple of gymnastics meets recently. And I just want to say that she came in 14th in the all around at level four at the meet uh, in Bridgeport, Connecticut last week, I think it was. And, um, you know, I don't know anyone who works harder at anything than she does at gymnastics. It's like 10 hours a week in the gym, a lot of conditioning that would like literally give me a hernia. And uh, it's it's an amazing thing to watch a 10-year-old do. So mazel tov, Ellie. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can get our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. If you want to wear or carry unorthodox or put an unorthodox onesie around your newborn little child, you can go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and spend some of that hard-won money. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group on Facebook. Our show was produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our new holiday time intern is Jillian Forstadt. Yay, Jillian. Yay, Jillian. Yay. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Jonathan Perlman of New Light Congregation in Pittsburgh. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which says Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.